Cause we got the alternative energy right. On a nuclear free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Hello and welcome, I'm AC and you're listening to the Radioactive Show Produced at 3CR in Fitzroy, Melbourne On the tr- traditional lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation And broadcast across the stolen continent through the Community Radio Network This June marks the 30th anniversary of the New Zealand Nuclear Free Zone Disarmament and Arms Control Act. Today's show features an interview originally recorded at Plains FM in Christchurch. In it, you'll hear Sally Carlton from Speak Up Kororotia, who is talking to nuclear disarmament experts Kate Jews, Ken Graham and Natasha Burns. Kate Jews is currently the co-director of the Disarmament and Security Centre in Christchurch and has 30 years' experience in peace advocacy. Among other highlights, Kate has worked as an advisor to two UN security generals on disarmament issues, Kofi Annan and Ban Ki-moon. Ken Graham is a Greens MP in New Zealand and spokesperson for them for global affairs, including disarmament. Natasha Burns is a member of the Public Advisory Committee on Disarmament and Arms Control, or PACDAC. She's worked on these issues for nearly 10 years. Um, first up, Sally asked to her guests to explain what is the New Zealand Nuclear Free Zone Disarmament and Arms Control Act about. Well, it bans the all nuclear weapons and nuclear-powered vessels from New Zealand territorial waters and airspace, actually. And it gives the Prime Minister the power to decide if a vessel is nuclear-armed, which is unusual. It's illegal for any New Zealanders to be involved in nuclear weapons development. They're not allowed to possess weapons, uh, help with the development of anything. Um, Even if they were doing that offshore? Yes, Mm. which is very good. And it implements quite a few nuclear disarmament and arms control treaties. And it also unusually creates a public advisory committee on disarmament and arms control, which all three of us have been members of. And that is a really good accountability mechanism in terms of trying to um, make sure that the government actually implements what's in the Act. So it's a very interesting committee to be on. Mm. And quite unusual uh, globally to have a a, a citizens' committee overseeing uh, a government Act. Do you know why that was included in the legislation? Well, I was part of the discussions um, with Helen Clark at the time when they were setting up the Nuclear Free Act and she was pretty keen to have a citizen committee because it was a very strong peace movement at the time and we were all demanding a say in how the Act should be actually written and I think Ken would be interested, interesting to talk to about this because he was probably part of the drafting of the Act on the other side. <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, der- I was in the ministry and involved on the periphery. I wasn't actively involved in the drafting of the domestic legislation, but um, very much involved. I, I certainly had a bit of an active hand in drafting the regional legislation with Chris Beebe and Nigel Fife. That was two years earlier, 1984-85. Um, Ken, could you perhaps fill us in a wee bit on what was the Rarotonga Treaty? Well, it, it was... Um, the the early uh, back in the early days of the Cold War, the the ways in which non nuclear weapon states thought that they could the only way in which they could protect themselves from nuclear weapons, the threat of it, was to develop zones that would be free of nuclear weapons. That is to say, deployment of nuclear weapons, and the full knowledge that there would be some major powers that had the ability to strike at them from 
the other side of the planet maybe, but um, nothing localized if there was a, a regional zone. So the Latin Americans took the initiative in the 1960s and uh, formula and formed a uh, Latin American nuclear weapon-free zone. Um, there have been previous um, initiatives in Central and uh, Eastern Europe, but they fell through because the Cold War crushed them out. But um, it, it, the, the, the next serious effort was in uh, South Pacific, and it was Australia's Bob Hawke and New Zealand's David Longy governments that uh, agreed to take that initiative in the mid-'80s and uh, with the South Pacific Island nations, um, largely south of the equator at the time. And it kicked off at the beginning of 1984. I'd just finished my PhD, so I was dragged in on the, uh, on the team, and we... We kept meeting in beautiful atoll areas in Fiji and, and elsewhere in South Pacific and in Canberra and in Wellington and uh, at a fairly fast pace negotiated the South Pacific regional uh, zone, nuclear-free zone, which um, did ban and still does ban land deployment of nuclear weapons but did not go as far as to ban their entry into the territorial waters um, of the the South Pacific states. So it was left largely at that stage, I think, from memory, to Vanuatu and New Zealand to go ahead and do that in domestic legislation. Yes, I'd like to take up that point, Ken, because I want to pay tribute really to the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Movement, which was calling for this sort of zone for a very long time and even earlier, really, with people in C&D and Christchurch in particular, like Mary Woodward and Elsie Locke, and collecting of over 80,000 signatures for um, a petition for no bombs south of the line, which would have been the whole South Pacific, or South, Southern Hemisphere nuclear-free zone. Yeah. But also, yeah. I yeah. think... And, what, and, and the whole issue of the French nuclear testing yeah. in uh, French Polynesia uh, w- w- was behind that as well, even though French Polynesia and New Caledonia were not able to, be, to actively negotiate the zone, but... But then, of course, uh, it, it did develop protocols. The Even though all we could do was ban land deployment, we did have protocols. One of which, to the to the to the treaty, one of which uh, invited the nuclear powers to give uh, non-use assurances to to the to Australia, New Zealand, and the South Pacific Islands, and. Uh, they signed on one by one over the, as the years went by. China and Russia, of course, signed on earlier, um, shortly after 1985. And uh, but in due course, the US, UK, and and France signed on as well. So that then got that then addressed the whole issue of nuclear deterrence uh, theory. Um, so there was a distinction between the the intensity of of domestic opposition here in New Zealand to the visits by anybody's nuclear-capable warships on the one hand, which which produced the national legislation, um, but a a broader concern, uh, very closely related, uh, pertaining to the South Pacific Regional Zone as well. I'd just like to add that New Zealanders were inspired by Balao becoming nuclear-free, one of the first, actually, in 1979-80, and then um, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu. And, uh, but ours was the only legislation as such that um, was, has, has continued for those 30 years, so really worth acknowledging it. That was Kate Jews acknowledging the inspiration New Zealand took from Balao, which introduced a nuclear-free constitution in 1979, a world first. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced on the unceded lands of the Rwandari people of the Kulin Nations in what is now known as Fitzroy, Melbourne. 
This show is, a broad, is broadcast across the stolen lands of so-called Australia through the Community Radio Network, and it's an affiliate show for ACE Nuclear Free Collective, which is part of Friends of the Earth. We're listening to an interview with from Plains FM, a community radio station in Christchurch, where Sally Carlton spoke with Kate Jews, Natasha Burns and Ken Graham about the New Zealand Nuclear Free Zone Disarmament and Arms Control Act. Sally asked how Natasha, as the youngest person on the show, learned about the legislation. Yeah, um, I, I think I kind of came at the nuclear issue thinking that it was somewhat a, a kind of quaint um, aspect of New Zealand's identity, in the same way that, that, that jandals or kiwis at Christmas, you know, a good time, good night kiwi might be. Um, but it wasn't until I was at university and, and studying um, political issues that, that the topic came up and I really started thinking about it in, in a lot more detail. And so I'm, I'm not sure that, that young New Zealanders think of it as a contemporary issue um, because well, most millennials were born after I was two when the act was put into place. So it, it, for, for a lot of New Zealanders, it could fall into the, the history bucket. Um, but uh, when I discovered the issues, I realised how incredibly important and how incredibly current it was. Um, so, yeah. I think you touched on a really key point, which is this idea of identity and how mm. much is it a part of New Zealand's identity, this idea of New Zealand committing to, and as you mentioned, Kate, being the only country that's committed to this kind of legislation. I think for me it's been something that, especially when I've travelled overseas, I've um, heard from many diplomats around the world that they really honour what we've done, they see us as being strong and outspoken on this particular issue, and they see it as part of our more more independent foreign policy, we're not independent yet, Um, but that that's given us a status within the UN in particular, uh, helped us get onto the Security Council, I think even into Head of the Commonwealth and some of the other roles we've had. And I think we're often seen as more of an honest broker, not always. <laughs> um, but it's also helped us uh, be seen as a sort of a middle power on disarmament issues, even though we're a very small country. So our role in the New Agenda Coalition and um, and I, I certainly wouldn't have been appointed to something like a United Nations Secretary-General's Advisory Board on Disarmament. I mean, I was the first Australasian ever, Oceania representative, on a committee like that. And that wouldn't have happened without this. Um, so I think there is a status about it internationally uh, and that we were prepared to be stand up to the bullies because mm. our American and Australian and British friends, so-called, uh, weren't very friendly over this issue. Mm. So a lot of those, sorry, a lot of those stories are um, some are known in, in mm. sort of public imagination, public understanding, but but many aren't. Um, but it is a great example of, of Kiwis getting out there and punching above our weight and, and really standing on the international stage. And so if, if more New Zealanders can understand that story and, and draw power from that, then then that's then that's a, a really great history for the, the act to have. Ken, have you got anything to add? Um, yeah, well, in terms of the role of the zone itself, I think it's very much uh, become a, a part of um, New Zealand's self-perceived national identity and, and mm. to a large extent um, perceptions from outside as well. I think uh, often you hear um, 
comment, both from New Zealanders and non-New Zealanders. Uh, you, you could say there are three, historically, three major um, initiatives that have given rise to New Zealand's identity. Universal suffrage, um, first in the world, first country in the world. Um, social security, national widespread social security, first country in the world. Nuclear-free zone, we weren't the first country in the world, but, but in terms of our national legislation, as opposed to the regional zone, um, we were, I think, or certainly one of the very, very early ones, and 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 I'm pretty sure the only one, the first one, and I think the only one to this day that was part of a nuclear alliance, yes. and whose policy on the zone resulted in uh, in in not being continuing to be part of that nuclear alliance. So the three, the three stand there together, uh, I think, with equal import. Um, the difference when you, when you go into the specifics. And you say, well, where does it compare today with everything? I, in terms of like foreign policy, I think you you have to acknowledge that probably the young people find Gallipoli to be a more emotive thing to rally around each year than they do the nuclear-free zone. And probably the reason for that has to do with village cenotaphs and, and, and family bereavements that we still carry um, and, and feel from grandparents and so on. That was Ken Graham talking about how much New Zealanders identify or not with the nuclear-free legislation. Next, Kate Jew speaks about the debate in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in the 80s about nuclear power generation. Well, speaking from the um, movement's perspective, when we were first out with the peace squadrons in Auckland and even in Christchurch and Wellington, um, one of the issues we were working on then was the whole issue of whether New Zealand should get nuclear power. So I just want to cover that because the Act doesn't actually cover nuclear power generation. But in 1975, there was a um, petition um, which received nearly as many votes. Was It was the next biggest um, petition after the suffrage one. So it was over 330,000 for campaign half million to stop nuclear power, and we did that. And that was part of the education um, of the population, I think, that helped underpin what was happening then for becoming a nuclear-free zone. But it was also people were aware of what was happening to the environment in the Pacific with testing and the effects on intergenerational effects, but also that radiation was actually reaching New Zealand shores. It was in breast milk of my mother's generation and and cows at the time. It was all being picked up um, strontium-90 in milk. Most people don't know that, but that was again a mobiliser for people um, on that issue. But also, it's the biggest weapon that could be used to um, devastate the environment, and certainly with the testing, the heating of the ocean and the heating of the atmosphere. So it's certainly linked. Um, One final comment that I had, and Kate, this touches on what you raised in the first section, was um, that this act was very much something that resulted from a partnership between government and civil society. And that strikes me as being something that's quite unusual. Have you seen, and this is a question for all of you, have you seen um, similar types of work being done? And has that, uh, two questions, I suppose, and has that civil society government partnership continued in this space? I'd just like to comment on just the nuclear one to start with because I think that it needed the citizen movement to build up the public pressure and women were very involved, certainly in the early 80s when uh, we brought Helen Caldicott out to uh, speak around the country. I mean, within weeks of her being here, there were 30,000 women and children on the streets of Auckland just on this issue. And, of course, then that mobilised as well a lot of the parliamentarians who were sympathetic, people like Helen Clark and Phil Goff had actually been out on... 
um, Peace Squadron boats. But what it meant was that you built it up at every level and we had 300 small um, peace groups around the country that were speaking out on this issue and lobbying MPs. And then from that, when you get the Public Advisory Committee on disarmament, you get a real partnership in a sense of... Um, if the minister, and there was a minister of disarmament in those days, if the minister chairs the meeting and the minister of foreign affairs chairs the meeting, which is what happened the first three years I was on the advisory committee, you can actually have a really good dialogue. We used to call the prime minister in to ask him certain questions about this issue. And then we demanded that ordinary citizens went on government delegations to the UN. This is before email and all that sort of stuff and no funding for the peace movement. But that has grown since then, and I think it is one of the unusual models that we have in the country where uh, you have been able to get a committee that is government-appointed, okay, and not necessarily all independent speakers on it, but it is a form of accountability. Um, And hopefully this will continue into the future, and it's now become sort of public policy, uh, government policy, to include non-government people on delegations, to not just to the UN, but to disarmament sessions. I wouldn't mind finishing this section uh, by giving a quote from Don McKinnon, who in 1990 resigned as defence spokesperson for the National Party when the National Party said it would have to adopt this nuclear-free policy to actually be elected, and they did. But the quote from Don McKinnon was, New Zealand must have the most powerful and well-organised peace movement in the world. I fought against it, but I don't mind being beaten on this issue because ultimately the will of the people will prevail. And the beauty of it is, is that the will of the people has prevailed for the 33 years. Well said, Don McKinnon, then. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Kate, we've got your song, which is Shona Lang, Neutral and Nuclear Free, which sounds very apt for this discussion. Juvenile and naive I'll pay no ransom for my life It's only 
That's a song by Shona Lang, Neutral and Nuclear Free, originally released in 1987, the the same year that nuclear-free legislation was introduced into Aotearoa, New Zealand. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, and this week we're featuring an interview by Sally Carlton, recorded and originally broadcast at Plains FM in Christchurch. Sally is speaking with Kate Jews, Natasha Burns and Ken Graham about the 30th anniversary of the New Zealand Nuclear-Free Zone Disarmament and Arms Control Act. That's the legislation that made New Zealand nuclear-free. In this next section of the show, Kate speaks about challenges to the legislation. There's certainly been two challenges. Um, One in 1992 when the national government tried to overturn Clause 11 of the Act, which is the nuclear-powered vessels part of it, and did a uh, big report on it, a uh, big committee on it, but in fact it became, it was overturned in the end, and they did not challenge the Act until, I think it was the early 2000, 2000 area, when Don Brash talked about it being gone by lunchtime, and I think he was gone by, not maybe not lunchtime and afternoon tea, but um, it was certainly a crazy issue for them to raise at the time, and uh, we were able to hold on to the policy, which was fantastic. I think in the in the last few years, there's been a, a an, the relationship between New Zealand and uh, the US has improved, um, and we are receiving ship visits. They still sit within the context of the Act and you know, very much verified as, as being nuclear, not nuclear. Um, but there is a, an increasing closeness there, and. Um, not a renewed alliance, but but New Zealand has become a a, a friend and partner of the US. Um, whether that, that I don't think that challenges the the validity of the act or, or its standing, um, but there's sort of soft movement in the undertones. And I think that's where we've got to be really vigilant mm-hmm. um, because there's this whole question of are we really out of ANZUS or are we still in it? Mm-hmm. Not we're certainly sharing intelligence with Five Eyes. But we're also still exercising uh, at times with nuclear-capable, potentially um, nuclear-powered and armed warships. And that was a question we used to raise on PACDAC as well, whether um, that was you know, going to undermining the Act. At times, we're not necessarily voting consistently in the UN on disarmament issues, and I know Ken will probably want to comment on that. Um, but we do have to watch. We're just spending $20 billion, I think, on upgrading our defence, and what's that for? Where's that going to go? And I, I just think um, we've got to be monitoring what's going. It's just interesting watching the last Anzac Day. There were a lot of US sailors out selling the poppies, winning the hearts and minds, and what is going to happen in the future. So I think we have to watch it carefully. Okay, you mentioned Five Eyes. What's that? The Five Eyes, UK-USA agreement, which is basically the listening in at Waihopai, Geraldton, um, Menwith Hill in Britain, NASA uh, and Canada is involved in it as well. It's it's like what Snowden and others were warning us about and Nikki Hager and others. If I can jump in on a point you raised, Kate, yeah. about uh, participation in, in military um, actions. So, I mean, uh, obviously... You know, Donald Trump versus North Korea and, and Kim Jong-un's growing nuclear arsenal and that the growing threat. New Zealand's recently participated in a, a very large mock land invasion in South Korea. Um, so we are actively participating in, in what could be seen as quite aggressive or challenging <laughs> relationships, yeah. Next up, Natasha considers how the wording of the Act impacts on how it works in reality. There are 
there are a number of, I guess, changes that we're seeing across the South Pacific. It's Australia looking to potentially host nuclear waste, but also as a large exporter of uranium, some of which passes through New Zealand ports, and it's in its very raw form. Yeah. Um, we that's not technically in the Act and thus not technically wrong, but when you're thinking of the, the preamble of the Act and then the spirit in which it's meant, um, Nuclear Free New Zealand uh, is not just, I, I guess, about being New Zealand nuclear free, but, but is, uh, I guess, New Zealand's participation in uh, yeah. international diplomacy as well. And, and that has ebbed and flowed in terms of our role. New Zealand has, you know, year 2000, we had some very active diplomats, a, a coalition of middle power states, the New Agenda Coalition, um, that sort of ebbed and flowed again, I guess, with the the, um, the, the tide of the international community and the focus on disarmament. Um, but I, I think we in New Zealand has had an opportunity where we have stepped forward and, and pushed for the issues, We're active on, on uh, the issue of... Uh, de-alerting nuclear weapons. There's some, I think, three, two and a half thousand warheads on, on 15-minute alert. So that's an issue that you know, New Zealand has, has really stepped in against. That's it for this week's Radioactive show, which is supported by station affiliate, the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. The show is produced at 3CR Community Radio Station in what is now known as Fitzroy, Melbourne, but which has always been the traditional lands of the Rwandri people of the Kula Nation, and we acknowledge that their sovereignty has never been ceded. You can contact the Radioactive Show on our email, radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com, and that's three the digit. Or look up our Facebook group under the name, The Radioactive Show. Past episodes are available on the 3CR website. Go to www.3cr.org.au backslash radioactive. And again, that's three the digit. Thanks for listening, and special thanks to Sally Carlton from the Kōrerotia Show on Plains FM, which is a community radio station in Ōtotahi, or Christchurch, which is in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Here's to a nuclear-free future. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that. That nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded. I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. Australians love their digital equipment and that's all fine and good because it increases our quality of life but we need to think more carefully about what we're doing when we're finished with it. E-waste is growing at three times the rate of other municipal waste. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in 
and listen up. Indigenous people in Australia in the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing and this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that yes there is uh, certain hazards but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice and as we fast forward to today we see that same thing. 3CR keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time it's important to have a voice like 3CR steady constant sane and committed to a nuclear free Australia.